As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Hello, and welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. We're deep into season two, where we've been talking all about reclaiming our sacred plant partnerships. So if you're just starting with this episode, be sure to go listen to the others after this one. You don't have to listen to them in order. However, you'll find that each episode builds on the previous one. Now, at the beginning of the season, we focused more on what happened to humanity to sever our collective plant relationships. And in the last few episodes, we've talked more about what it looks to reclaim that connection. Now we're getting into how we can blend our magical practices with physical action to help heal ourselves in the land. And in today's episode, I have an awesome guest to share with you who I have followed online for years, possibly since the beginning of her blog in 2010. Dana O'Driscoll writes nearly weekly posts on her blog, The Druid's Garden. I have loved watching her work on and share projects from her original homestead in Michigan before she felt called back to the land where she grew up in western Pennsylvania, where she now tends five acres. She spent most of her childhood in those wooded hills of the Laurel Highland region of Pennsylvania, making mud pies, building brush cabins, and eating berries. Thankfully, little has changed, and she can still be found practicing permaculture, wildcrafting, and creating natural arts. She says that she's often covered with dirt, paint, or both. She is both a certified permaculture designer and a permaculture teacher, but she's also a modern-day druid. In fact, Dana currently serves as the Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America and is an Olave adept. Her Druid Adept project explored connections between permaculture and druidry, and the end result was published last year as Sacred Actions, Living the Wheel of the Year Through Earth-Centered Sustainable Practices. She's also the author and illustrator of the Tarot of Trees and Plant Spirit Oracle. Later this year, she has the Sacred Actions Journal and the Tree Lore Oracle being published. And I will add links to all of this in the show notes so you can find her magical offerings online. I just know you're going to love Dana and this conversation so much, and I can't wait for you to hear it because I'm sure it's going to inspire you to get outside and connect with the plants and trees in your own community on a totally different level. Now, before we jump into this discussion, let me just share that if you're feeling called into an even deeper relationship with our allies here on planet Earth, I would love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. Reclaiming our ancient ancestral connection with this planet and the spirits of the land and learning to speak their language can bring such a richness to our day-to-day experience here on Earth. If you want to learn more about the history and energy of the community you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the Earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment, 
I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other earth tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join us in this beautiful community. And now, here is my conversation with Dana O'Driscoll. Welcome, Dana, to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. I have followed your blog for years and love all of the projects that you share about in your garden and just so excited to have this conversation today. Thanks. Yeah, so let's dive right in with the one question that I'm asking all of our guests this season while we're talking about sacred plant partnerships, and that's, what do you remember? What are your earliest memories with plants? So earliest memories with plants, my grandfather actually taught me a great deal about plants when I was really, really young because he passed when I was seven. So I remember going to the forest and he taught me about like things like American ginseng, dwarf ginseng, mushrooms. And we had this big forest right below our house. And the way that it worked was like, there was like kind of like a family area. Like there were multiple houses where everybody had their own property, but our family all lived back there. And so my cousins and I would go to the forest with grandpa and he would share various kinds of plant knowledge. And that's definitely like the earliest memories I had of plants. And I really do feel like even though he passed when I was still really young, I do feel like he gave me a really deep connection with the earth that just kind of continued to prosper. And one of the ways I think that I connect with plants is because of that connection. That's now an ancestral connection for me. Yeah. I mean, what an amazing gift to have somebody, you know, when you're in those young formative years to take you out in the forest and introduce you to those plants (laughs) and your ecosystem and your plants there. And you're in Northeast United States, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And mine here Um, in Montana. (laughs) Yeah. I'm in Western Pennsylvania, which is kind of mid-Atlantic. Western Pennsylvania is kind of interesting because we're on the Appalachians, but we're in the Allegheny Mountains, which is a really ecologically diverse area. So we're kind of on the border of like New England and we're on the border of the South and we're on the border of the Midwest, but firmly (laughs) mid-Atlantic. Amazing. And yeah, I bet it is a huge plant diversity with all those different ecosystems kind of merging together. Yeah. You are a druid. That is also part of the name of your blog and what you share under, but, you know, tell us a little bit more about what it means to be a Druid and especially in our modern culture. Sure. So it's actually kind of a funny question because there's a joke in Druidry and it is, if you ask five Druids what Druidry is, you'll get 10 answers. So So I will give you my answer. I'm the head of the ancient order of Druids in America. So I'm also going to kind of use some of what we teach in AODA, because I think that that answers the second part of your question. Like, what does it mean to be a Druid today? So I would say that for people, Druidry is obviously nature, spirituality, nature oriented spirituality, but it's also for many people, a philosophy and a life path in the sense that Druidry has three primary branches, all of which we use to connect to ourselves and to the living earth. So Druidry has the Druid branch, which would be like the metaphysical divination, ritual, ceremony, meditation, those sorts of things to really connect with our spirit and connect with plant spirits and other things. Druidry has an ovate path, which is kind of like our physical interaction with nature. So that would be where like gardening and herbalism and refugia, things we were going to talk about tonight um, come in. And then Druidry also has a bardic path. How I would say it would be 
channeling nature's inspiration into creative practices. So I'm a visual artist. Other people might be musicians or poets. And so those three pieces together kind of form many different expressions of Druidry. In terms of the second part of the question, that's a really challenging piece, particularly here in North America, particularly for somebody like me. I mean, I'm a white person. You know, my family came here and colonized. And I'm really, really aware of the fact that, you know, I'm living on land that should belong to indigenous people. And my family, you know, my ancestors, a couple of generations back were part of this. And so thinking about what do I do as a Druid, trying to practice nature spirituality in this setting is really important. So what we do in AODA is we do what we call wildcrafting Druidry. So this is you going into your local ecosystem, learning about it, spending time there, observing, interacting, meditating, and actually sort of developing your own unique relationship with the living earth. So maybe you have four seasons in a wheel of the year and you practice that, or maybe you only have three seasons, or maybe you have 12 different patterns. So each of us kind of in AODA, we really work to figure out what Druidry looks like for you in your particular ecosystem with your particular background. And I think that that really helps because now we're not trying to take someone else's stories or understandings of plants, particularly here in the U.S. You know, and Druidry originated in Europe. And so in Europe, the context is really different. But here in the United States, like we really do have to think about how do we engage in this in an ethical way and in a way that honors both what we would call the ancestors of the land and those indigenous people who are still here, while also recognizing how we can be a force of good as Druids. You know, it's kind of a complicated thing in some ways, because we are really working to connect deeply with the land, but do so in a respectful way. So wildcrafting kind of gives us some of that piece that we can really do that. And I would consider like an ethical way. I love that so much. It really speaks to a lot of what I share about as well in the Earth Tenders Academy, because it really is this process. My ancient ancestors as well, you know, the ones that tend to come and work with me in spirit are mainly from Scandinavia. And so it is this real dichotomy for us of how do we live in a place that our ancestors wouldn't recognize? And how do we connect with the ancestors who their ritual and their traditions were in a place that we don't recognize. And so it really does kind of feel like we have to start over and we have to come into a new relationship with a place where we live now. Yeah. And I think what I like about Druidry is that, I mean, it is part of my own cultural heritage. You don't have to have Druidry as part of your cultural heritage, but you know, it comes from Ireland and Wales and Great Britain. And so there is that piece where I am practicing something that it doesn't look anything like what ancient Druids would have practiced because we actually have lost most of that. Like most of that has long been gone for a thousand years. So we take the pieces we have left and craft it into something essentially that's mostly new, but at least it's inspired by that. And so we've got that piece. And then of course we have to add in you know, there's a lot of lore and things from the old world that simply don't apply. And there's a lot of plants and trees here that are completely different. And so there is a lot of building, but I think that that's really exciting because rather than sort of practicing a tradition that's set in stone, we're, well, it's kind of funny because we like stones and Druidry. You know? <laughs> <Right. laughs> rather than practicing a tradition that's set in stone, we recognize the importance of adapting it for today. For me too, for my personal Druid practice, a lot of that is about tending the land, about cultivating a really deep reciprocal connection, about making sure that I am giving as much as I'm taking, 
that I'm not taking nature for granted and that I recognize how valuable nature is to provide literally everything. And I think that sometimes people forget that. And so that idea of gratitude and reciprocation, they're really important to my personal practice, but I think they're also important generally to Druids as we're thinking about how do we build different relationships that are not rooted in our culture, which is all about destruction and consumption, and instead really build healthy relationships where we can become a force of good rather than a force of simply consuming. And so I think that's another piece of it. I love that so much. And I'm sure I'll add links in the show notes for people who want to learn more about this, because I'm sure this is going to speak to a lot of people (laughs) who listen to this podcast regularly. But obviously, we've lost a lot of that ancient wisdom. And many of those things for a variety of reasons are have not come into our modern times. But from your understanding and research that you've done, what would you say the ancient druids relationship with plants would have been? Well, we have one ancient druid ritual that exists, and it's a bunch of ancient druids. They sacrifice a bull, and then they actually harvest mistletoe growing on an oak with a golden sickle. That was written by Pliny the Elder. There's about nine pages in total that have actually survived that are directly written about the ancient druids. The druids didn't write their teachings down, so But we know that this one piece, we know mistletoe, right? So we know that they were practicing plant medicine and the rest of it. And then we have other pieces like there's OM, which is like a tree divination system is how most people are now. Mm -hmm. So we have those kinds of little pieces, but I also think that we can learn, like, this is my own philosophy about it. You know, since we don't really have that much, like we know that they were doing some kind of powerful, probably healing. Right. But beyond that, my philosophy about this is this, if we look at plants in terms of their human uses, so we look at the lore around them. We look at their actual physical features, like what do they do in the landscape? We look at how they can heal us or whether they poison us or whatever it is, right? I think then we can actually get at many of the meanings that may have been lost because whatever people were doing with these plants magically or herbally or in a sacred way had to come in some way from nature. So if we spend enough time working with the plants in different ways, like with a tree, working the wood, you know, learning how to make cordage, learning how to make medicine, observing the tree, seeing what grows on the tree, around the tree, then suddenly I think we can actually get at some of that. You know, it's probably not going to be exact. There's probably pieces that are missing, but it at least gives us a place to start for, you know, like somebody like me as a druid, like, you know, I'm practicing a tradition that has almost no ancient history and I'm practicing in a new place. So there is so much that, as I said before, we have to build, you know, that gets a little bit probably further along in the interview if you wanted to go, but I think that's a piece that's important here. I love that because, I mean, the power of observation being so important in that. And I think we forget sometimes how little time we spend outside or with the trees or with the plants compared to what our ancient ancestors would have likely done, right? Like they would have just observed and witnessed and been in relationship in a completely different way than, you know, when we can go inside and shut the door and yeah. Watch Netflix for six hours. You know, they were sitting outside and watching the clouds and seeing what the trees were doing and watching their behavior a lot more. So I think that's a really good point about a simple thing really that we could do to just spend more time in observation and in partnership and working with these plants, because that'll help us learn what their special gifts are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like then it puts you sort of in conversation with nature, right? Because I think it's really easy to go pull a book off your shelf, you know, and say, oh, what does this plant do and open it up? And actually, you know, whether you're doing working with plants magically or you're working as an herbalist, there's actually a real danger in doing that because you don't know where that came from. Now, you know, 
some herbal books are really good. You know, we know what rosemary does as herbalists, like we have a good sense of what it does magically. That plant has been with humans for a long time. But when you're looking at something like say a maple tree that doesn't actually have a huge tradition surrounding it, actually looking at what maple's actually doing in the ecosystem, like maple, our maples we tapped about a week ago and they're flowing. I harvested three gallons of sap today and I drank deeply of it. (laughs) I drank right out of the bucket. And like that experience, it does not matter how many books I read about maple. It doesn't matter how many people talk to me about maple. The experience of drinking the sweet sap that is literally welling with life and what we druids would call nuivre, which is like the life force, drinking that and having that vitality flow through me after I had already been in relationship with these trees and I had asked permission, I had done ceremony even to tap them. And I work with them on this land in a sacred way for years. There's no comparison, right? So I can't get that experience out of reading a book. I mean, a book can be a good source and it can start, but the act of actually building that relationship and creating that sap and later that syrup and being outside and boiling it, like that's just an example of what I'm talking about. So then I can work with maple magically. And because I know that maple is flowing in the early spring. So it's the first for here in our ecosystem that for us is oftentimes what we understand to be emulk, right? So rather than like a traditional understanding of emulk, which would be like lactating ewes, right? Right, right. Emulk for us here in Western Pennsylvania almost always happens like the maples start flowing right around emulk. So for us, that's the first sign of spring. And because in our tradition, spring is all about creativity and inspiration and new ideas and newness. You can start to put these pieces together. Oh, if I want to bring some creativity and new ideas into my life, maybe I should be going out to that maple tree and working with it in some way, you know? So then you can start to build this, but it's all rooted in the ecosystem itself and in your interaction over time. Yeah. And so much, I mean, as well as you describe that, you realize how much of that is also without words, right? That actual experience of being in partnership, drinking in the sap, being out on the landscape. I mean, so many of those things. And that's what I find when I have been doing a lot of these interviews and talking to people is like trying to actually describe some of these experiences or some of this, you know, real probably just like wisdom exchange that's happening between the plants and us is just happening naturally in our bodies without words or language or specific thoughts being exchanged. Yeah. And, you know, this kind of gets to like our cultural bias where our cultural bias, we're extremely head-based, right? We live in our heads, even like, if you think about all of the devices, you know, you're on it, you almost like lose track of your body. And I also believe that intuition is really body-based. So getting out in nature and doing some of these practices I'm talking about, observing, interacting, being present, that's a way of us moving from sort of a head space to like a heart centered place, which is where I really feel probably our ancient ancestors spent a lot of time or at least those things in balance. And so bringing that back, like there's nothing wrong with bringing those heady pieces in, we need them, right? But we've got to balance them with what's in the heart. And if I'm thinking about my intuition, I should be paying attention to what is my body telling me? Am I being pulled in a particular direction when I go outside? Well, maybe I should follow that, right? Or when I come up to a tree, do I get a sense that I'm welcome? Or do I get a sense, hey, you need to back off. I'm going to feel that in my body. And so maybe I should be paying attention to that, you know, get my hat out of my phone or, you know, whatever. <laughs> do that. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like there's that piece of it. And so there is this, like, for me, this really deep experiential piece that simply it cannot be replicated with something I read. And I think that's an important part of how do we work deeply with plants. We got to put the time and the effort in, you know, to begin with. 
It's so true. And it's that subtle communication that comes from the landscape and comes from the plants that, yeah, if you are too much in your head, you can just dismiss it and not notice that it's there because it is so gentle. But the more you are out and immersed in it, the more you notice it so easily about being pulled in a direction or feeling welcome or unwelcome. It's such a remarkable experience to be in conversation that way. One of my teachers said to me, nature has no need to speak over you. Mm. And I just think that that's a really powerful statement because you meditate on that. And you're like, yeah, if I'm too busy in my own head and too busy filling my, you know, I'm not creating space for nature. I'm not creating space for spirit. Nature's not going to speak over me. <laughs> you know, she respects me too much to speak over me. No, I need to respect oh, her. And create so space beautiful. For me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Well, shifting gears just a little bit. I don't know. You can tell me if this is something you have coined or created or where this came from, but you have created something called a refugia garden. And I would love for you to tell us just a little bit more about what that is, where that came from and how people can create them for themselves. Sure. So I have some of this information on my blog. And actually, I have a forthcoming book from Red Feather in 2023 on land healing, which actually goes into great depth about refugia. So look for that in two years. In the meantime, yeah. So the idea actually came, one of my mentors is John Michael Greer, and he actually introduced me to the concept of refugia. And then I think I sort of took it and went wild with it, essentially. So basically, this concept was coined after the last ice age. So we had the ice ages that were completely covering the landscape, and almost everything was being essentially driven away, worn off by these big glaciers. But there were small pockets of life that managed to exist. Maybe it was the top of a mountain, or even humans did this. Like we hid out in the Mediterranean on cliffs during this last ice age. The idea is that. During these times where we have inhospitable conditions in many places, we can cultivate small pockets of life. So you might think about the North American lawn as a very inhospitable condition for most life. We have 40 million acres of lawn in North America alone. You know, it's something like 40% or 50% of our land mass is either industrial farms or lawn or city. And so if you think about that, like these are really inhospitable conditions. This is why we have so many animals and plants and invertebrates and everything else that are going extinct or that are in danger of extinction. Habitats are being fragmented and it's because humans are putting too much demand and the spaces that we're dominating are being dominated with chemicals. I mean, you look at a lawn and that's a painful space. That is a space that's being driven by fossil fuels and it's just not a place where you're going to find life. It's toxic. And so how do we respond? Well, as much as I would love to eradicate the 40 million acres of lawns in America, I don't have that luxury. But what I can do is control what I have direct control over, right? So you build a refugia. You say, okay, what are species that are specific to my ecosystem that could really use help? Maybe those are aquatic species. Like we have the Eastern hellbender here, which is a really, really big and rare salamander. We have box turtles that are really rare. Maybe it's plant species. The United Plant Savers has a really great list of like species at risk. And then your state extension office does as well. So you can actually start looking at those and saying, what are species that I could actually help? And maybe I just have a corner garden. Maybe it's monarchs, right? We know monarchs are at risk, all kinds of invertebrates, every bug and butterfly and bee here, right? So you have to sort of say, what can I do? Do I have a patio? Do I have five acres? Do I have a hundred acres, right? Do I have a suburban backyard and then say, well, what can I help? 
So then essentially what you do is after you do some learning, and this is where book knowledge comes in really handy and talking to conservation officers locally and talking to people, then you essentially create this space and you do everything you can to cultivate that life in that space. And then you can start doing ritual and then you can start doing magic. And then after time, you can start gathering the excess, the, the abundance and that's which is seeds and rhizomes and other things. And then you can start scattering them broadly on your landscapes. So I kind of cultivate a couple of these. One that I'm really committed to is rare woodland medicinal species, which come right out of the United Plant Savers list. So this is ramps. This is American ginseng. This is golden seal, black cohosh, things like that, blue cohosh. And these are plants in my ecosystem in Pennsylvania, we have a tremendous amount of logging and logging disrupts the forest floor. And so things like American ginseng, which also gets pillaged very badly, or ramps can't handle all the pressure of logging. But if a space is logged, it essentially needs the raw material to regrow. So then I go in and I start scattering ramp seeds after I've collected them at my own refugia, right? Or maybe in very select protected places, I might even bring some American ginseng seeds back because ginseng is something I have never seen in the wild here because it goes about $400 a pound overseas. So poor people go out and try to harvest all the ginseng they can find. And that's just the nature of it. So you have to sort of say to yourself, okay, how can I create a pocket of life and how can I do some good? And what's so cool about this idea is that it's extremely empowering. You could really be the difference in your immediate bioregion between something going extinct and something hanging on. Maybe that's an invertebrate. I mean, that's kind of, you know, fly or bug that you don't even know is coming to your plants. And this is again, reciprocation, gratitude, right? These are these basic things. It's like, how do I become a force of good in my ecosystem and for this land? I live in a really hard place. Like we have logging, we have a ton of fracking out here, natural gas fracking. Nobody even owns the mineral rights to their properties. Like the land that I sit on, I don't own the mineral rights and the mineral rights have been sold off for 200 years before I got here. So people could come on and frack my land and there would be nothing I could do about it. We have all of this acid mine drainage and, you know, coal power plants, like you name it, like mountaintop removal. And so when I, as a Druid sit here and say, wow, like there is so much going on in my landscape that I have no power over that I'm really sad about. Yes. There's a lot of ritual things that I can do, but I can also do this refugia. And I can know that even though there's things that I have no control over around me, I am doing good for the animals and the plants and the invertebrates and the amphibians and the fish here in the place that I can control. And I'm trying to take some of that and joyfully spread it outward. So I guess that's the basic concept. First of all, just chills, right? Like, because it's so difficult. And I get this question a lot from people, you know, we see the large scale destruction that's happening around us and we feel helpless. Yes. And this is such a beautiful way. And I think we forget, as you're saying, like, some of the things we just maybe never see, we don't know that there's an insect there that's doing, you know, this very specific pollination job or the salamander or what, you know, we may just never see it and know how important it is to our ecosystem. And so doing what we can in the space that we have, whether it's like you say, just, you know, pots on your balcony of your apartment up to larger scale, if you've got more property and then to have plant material, whether it's the tubers or the seeds or the whatever that you can carry to another location where that's missing, it makes you feel like maybe we can you know, have an impact. Maybe there is something we can do. And I think the magic, as you point out, is a really big piece of it. I've oh, yeah. had 
an amazing experience that I've talked about this location many times here on the podcast, but living in a forested area here in Northwest Montana, of course, everything's been logged. So, you know, it looks from a distance like this beautiful forest, but really it's a monoculture of Douglas fir that was planted after the first or second round of logging. And all of the understory plants are gone in most places. And so I live on five acres and that's certainly what it's like there. It's very, you know, two or three kind of things on the land. But there is a spot that I found halfway up a mountain where somebody had the foresight in the 1960s to say, we need to hold this one spot and not log it so people can see what the old growth forest looks like. And so I have spent countless hours (laughs) wandering around in this place and had the experience of seeing like, these are the plants that belong here in this ecosystem. And what's interesting to me is that I haven't started taking a lot of action of specifically getting some of this plant material, you know, to where I can cultivate it myself. But in the energetic work that I've been doing on the land, they are magically appearing. I'm like having orchids show up that were not there when we moved there. You know, it's almost like just my conscious awareness of what should belong there, along with the energy work, is helping them to come back. Even without the material. So, I mean, imagine adding the actual seeds and (laughs) plants and everything else. Yeah. And I want to really point out because it's really important what you've done. It's not that you just said, oh, I think these plants should go here. Oh, they look nice. It's that you've put the time into going and looking at what an old growth forest should look like and what plants are there so that you can actually do the most good. So, I mean, because, you know, this is like what I'm describing requires you to really invest a lot of time and energy and understanding what the ecosystem could look like, what should be there, what's at risk, right? But I think that this energetic piece is really important too. So if you live in an area like we do, right, where there's a lot of human pressure that's causing a lot of pain and suffering to the spirits of the land, somebody doing this work, it's like a breath of fresh air, you know, and it's like hope in a hopeless situation and doing the ritual. And we can talk about the ceremonial pieces, the ritual pieces too, I feel like it's those things. And that's what we've got to do. Because if you focus on the big picture and all that you think about is all these terrible things that are happening, then you can get in a really bad, depressed state. And if you're going out on the land in sadness and in grief, that's not the energy you want to be taking right now, right? So it's about finding things that you can do that you feel good about and that you feel that you're actually making a difference. And I think of all the things I've learned, like, you know, I practice permaculture and homesteading and all of these various things, natural building, herbalism, but of all the physical things I learned, I have the most hope in the refugia because that is the thing that it doesn't matter then how much gets destroyed as long as there's enough of us protecting. And if suddenly, you know, 10 people listen to this podcast and now they're doing it and then they share it with 10 more, suddenly we've got them all over the place. And then we can work on larger scale conservation. And so I guess I choose to believe that we can have a positive vision of the future. And I choose to engage in actions that directly do that. And when I find myself in a place of despair, and I'm not going to say that that doesn't happen because like, it's hard, it's hard to like drive down the road here and not see that happening. But I try to take that energy and see it just as energy and then channel it into something that makes a difference because it's hard. Like it's hard today to not be depressed and look at the statistics and you know, seeing like the really warm spell, for example, or the polar vortex, like the changes on the land that are being directly caused by humans. Like it's hard not to get depressed. And that's part of why I wrote this land healing book. Like the best thing that we can do is control what we can control and put our energy to it. And enough of us do that. Suddenly we're making a big difference. Yeah. And I think, we underestimate the amount 
of impact we're able to have, right? Because you're right, you drive down the street and you see, oh my gosh, this whole hundreds of acres just got cleared to put houses in or or whatever the case. And it just feels like, how can I, in my little corner of the world, you know, have an impact that's equal? But I think we forget sometimes how strong and how powerful and how resilient nature and plants and trees and all of these things, you know, really are and how quickly they will come back and reclaim and take over. And we as humans just, we just need to do our little piece and our little part to help out and do some of these things that we can do to assist with our, as I always say, our arms and our legs, you know, that we can (laughs) do that's a little harder for them sometimes. Yeah. And I also think like, it's been really interesting to see like what happened to AODA, for example, during the pandemic, you know, we've had massive amounts of growth with new members, like way more than we've ever seen before. And I actually think that the pandemic and some of the things that have been happening in our culture have actually been a catalyst where more and more people are starting to say, okay, like the before times, maybe they weren't so great. And maybe I really do want to make some personal changes and it's interesting to see how many new people are coming into, whether it's nature, spirituality, or herbalism. And to me, they're all like different pieces of, like, we're all climbing the same mountain in different ways. Like, we're all trying to return to nature. And so the question is, how are you doing it? You know, whether you're going to get a permaculture design certificate and start doing nature-oriented designs, or whether you're going to practice herbalism or become a druid and do ceremony. But I do get the sense that those are things that are really starting to matter to a lot of people. And it's easy to say, oh, I'm alone. But then you look at, okay, well, no, I'm not alone. Like there's like 3000 members in this Druid order I belong to or whatever that are all doing together. And so I think the other piece of this is like, we've been talking about plants, but there's other piece of this is rebuilding human communities and human connection and Mm. being available to help others on that path. And so that's also, I think, in a really important piece, like that's why I do blogging and writing and stuff. And that's one of the skill sets I've cultivated, but It's like, if I was just doing this on my land, that's an impact I can make. But if I'm able to share it or teach others how to do it, then suddenly it's like a ripple, right? Then I throw a big rock in a pond and then it's rippling. And then other people are throwing rocks and suddenly like things are changing. And so I do feel like we're in a really interesting time, but I think that there's a lot of possibility. And so, yeah, like we get 50 or hundred or 500 refugia going like, that's awesome, right? That's great. Or any other practice that brings us back to nature and really counters this dominant culture that is destructive ultimately of our planet and of our mother, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I live right on the doorstep of a national park and even before the pandemic, right, it was this explosive growth in people going to visit national parks, but really natural places and really having a desire to do that. And I think what we see a lot of times in the news is bad behavior, right? Like people who don't know how to behave in nature, which is a problem in and of itself. But it feels like this weird place where people are looking for something, right? They're looking for that connection. They're looking for the magic, but they're not sure how to cultivate it. They're, they just, you know, because our culture hasn't talked about that or shared about that. And so it only takes one transcendent experience, you know, out in the woods to say, how do I get that to happen more often? You know, how yeah. do I have more of these experiences? And so I think that's part of my sharing as well is just saying, you know, if there's more out there. You don't have to just pop out of your car and take a picture for Instagram and leave, you know, like there's more to do. There's more you can engage and immerse yourself. And that's where the magic happens. And, you know, wonderful to hear that so many people are coming to, you know, the organization as well and really feeling like, nature has been what's been there for us. And certainly in the last couple of years, when 
we've done nothing but leave our house or, you know, nothing other than leaving our house, maybe to go for a walk in the park around in nature that people have found some of that connection that was missing and that they were looking for. Yeah. And I think like in Druidry, we think a lot about this idea of enchantment and re-enchantment, you know, that our ancestors saw the world as an enchanted place. They recognized and worked closely with the spirits of nature, spirits of the land. And Western culture is one of the only cultures in the world that doesn't acknowledge that, you know, even other dominant cultures in the world acknowledge that. And I think it's really important. People are looking for that, like the idea of like, the world is already an enchanted place. Some people call it like re-enchantment, but I think it's re-enchanting ourselves. Like the world is an enchanted place. All I, need to go, like, yes. like, all I need to go is sit down with my ancient oak tree out in the, my front yard and know that the world is an enchanted place, but it's me who needs to be re-enchanted and it's me who needs to recognize. And that's part of why I like Druidry because we create space for people to talk about those experiences like, oh, I think I had a tree talk to me. Is that weird? I'm like, no, <laughs> like, I talk to trees every day, you know? Totally normal. <laughs> right. And just creating a space for people to be able to talk and share and recognize that there is an entire world of spirit out there ready to work with you and excited that you have returned home, you know? And that's why I don't see these practices. Like I said, there's a mountain we're all climbing it. Maybe there's even a couple of mountains, but in the end, like, it's so cool. Cause like, I belong to a couple of different communities, some of them are really practice-based and some of them are really spiritual, but in the end, it's fun to see people actually having the same conversation. So, you know, I do a lot of natural building, like we get in the mud and we mix cob with our feet and, you know, it's clay, sand and straw and you like make a building out of it. It's super intense and it really takes an enormous amount of time, but it's really fun. And like the people that are making cob houses are not actually really, in my opinion, much different than the people who are practicing permaculture and that are practicing Druidry. And in the end, we're all saying, how do we reconnect with nature? How can we honor nature? And how can we live closer to her while working to provide our own needs from nature and reciprocating? And that's just to me that that is the hope that I have about all of this. And that's why I think it's all so exciting right now. Yeah, it really is. And I I think you're right that the conversation is similar between communities because if you are just out in nature and you can't help but have these experiences and start asking these questions. And so, yeah, so it doesn't surprise me at all that the conversations start to be similar once people are spending time outside. And, you know, you alluded to this when we were kind of talking about the trees a little bit, but, you know, or the refugia gardens, but tell us a little bit about some of your kind of sacred planting or sacred plant practices when you're putting plants and putting trees in the ground or collecting seeds and doing some of these things? Sure. So I think the first and most important thing is to understand that nature has agency and that nature has voice and to let nature have that voice. So I don't do anything at all without permission from the spirits of the land. My first duty is to the land and not to my, I don't want to say not to myself because I'm an important part of it, but I think for so long, humans have simply taken what they want from nature. And so to me, before I do any ceremony, before I do anything, I simply go and I sit, I create my own offering blend that I grow in my garden and our wild craft from some trees on the land that have given me permission. And so I start with that where I'll go to a place and I'll, you know, say, Hey, you know, here are some things I could do. And just start a conversation and leave an offering and sort of see what happens. You know, maybe this land just now I'm cool. Like maybe you could do a little healing ceremony for me. I'm cool. Or yeah, I would love those seeds. 
And so I really feel like that is the very first thing is that we have to recognize that we have to listen to the spirits of the land and spirits of nature. And obviously I'm an animist, so I'm giving this from an animistic perspective, right? Um, (laughs) so, So that would be one thing that I would start with. And that's to me, the fundamental practice and nothing else can happen without it. So I actually always carry, like, I have a couple of them, but I carry an offering bag around my neck or in my purse. And I always have that with me and I'm always ready to sort of take the time to do that. And so a lot of like the land healing stuff takes a long time. Like the nature does not work in the time frame we do. So it might be that I come in the spring and we have a conversation and then we're like, all right, I'm going to think about it. And I'm like, all right, I'll be back. And I come back a month later and see where we're at. And then, you know, and a lot of it also starts, sometimes it's physical. Like you do want to do those plantings. I make these things called seed balls. Actually, they're also made out of cob. (laughs) I love soil. (laughs) These are seeds that I gather from my refugia garden or that I ethically wild harvest with permission from the land around. So there's some places that have like amazing amounts of milkweed that I can harvest enough milkweed seeds to spread, right? So I gather those and I actually have a couple of different versions. So I've got like my forest version with the ramp seeds and everything and blue cohosh seeds. And I've got my wild ditch version, you know, (laughs) So I craft these and I make them, you know, with the soil from my land, I can give you a link to how you do them. And then I fill them with seeds. And I usually do that at Samhain. And then over the winter, I will engage in various kinds of ceremonial blessings to infuse these, not only with sort of the blessing of growing, but just like a blessing for the land. So then after I have permission to do some of this and I know I'm welcome, like I can just like start tossing these things out my car windows I'm driving, you know, or 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 give them to kids and let the kids go have fun with them. And so then suddenly like I've created a ceremony that I can carry with me. And then a lot of the ceremonial work can be done here on my land, you know, even here in my art studio, which is also my sacred space. And then all I have to do is go out and share it. And I think that's also particularly important because a lot of places that might need healing are more public. And so I'm not going to go out there like, you know, woo woo in my robes and, you know, (laughs) just like, that's just, I mean, Like, especially where I live, I live in a very conservative area. That would just be a really bad idea, but I can still do that ceremonial sacred work by creating tools that I take out and by spreading these seeds, for example. So I think that's one example. Um, There's a lot of others I could talk about, but I think that gives you a sense of some of it. And I think like the other piece I'll share is that I do feel like if you are committed to a place, it's important to be committed to a place over time. I don't like the one shot where I go in and do something and then leave. Like I really want to commit to a relationship over time with the place. And actually that's part of why I moved back to Western Pennsylvania. After I finished school, I went and I lived in Michigan for six years and I had a really great job there and eventually got a great job here, but I decided that I wanted to come back home and I knew it was going to be hard. Certainly is, but I wanted to commit myself to this region that I grew up in that really needed this kind of thing. And I feel like that's another piece of this. Like if you're serious about really reciprocating and really building a relationship with the land, that means a relationship. It's kind of like a friendship. You know, you can't not call your friend for four years and then expect them to you know, send you a birthday gift. You know what I mean? And there's a big difference between posting to someone's Facebook saying, happy birthday. My birthday was just yesterday. So this is like fresh in my mind. Well, happy birthday. <laughs> Versus like coming over and helping them in their garden. So you kind of want to think about like, how am I cultivating this? And The deeper relationship that you can cultivate through ceremony, through intentional action, through reciprocation, like it's just these blessings from nature are just going to flow into you, you know? And, you know, like me drinking that maple sap today, as I was telling you earlier, it's just like, I felt the love of this land that, you know, we've been here for five years and we've been doing ceremony and regenerating it. And I felt that 
love coming through when I was drinking that sap. And so it's just like this beautiful thing that just keeps building and spiraling. And it's almost like the more you put into it, the more you receive and the deeper the spirits of nature are willing to go with you. To me, though, that all begins with gratitude, respect, reciprocation, recognizing that nature has agency and working just like nature's another person. You're not going to invade their space without asking, you know, you're not, you know, that kind of thing as just some basic sort of etiquette and ceremonial practice. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's really interesting to think about being committed to a place as well, because I think sometimes we have a short-term attitude about, you know, I'm not going to live here very long, or this is just a place I'm passing through. But I think even within your community, you can be committed to a place that you, you know, want to work with and visit and whatnot, even if you're not physically in your home in a place where you have a lot of space or a lot of land to work with. And, you know, being a steward or being a partner with that landscape can look a lot of different ways. Doesn't just have to be the place that you call home. (laughs) Oh, no. And I think like, you know, if you're going to be in a place for three years, like, hey, I'll be here for three years. Like, what can we do? You know what I mean? And I think it's really important because, you know, a lot of people are like, okay, well, I live in an urban setting. Like, what can I do? And the answer is, well, you can still do a lot. There's no reason that you can't scatter a lot of seeds around places. And even in cities, there's a lot of places that nobody cares about that are just overgrown with weeds and garbage, you know, start tending one of them or, you know, engage yourself in other conservation efforts. And this is another place, like the other piece of this. So there's the physical stuff you can do, but there's also like the ceremonial piece you can do. And I think that we're kind of at the stage here, late stage capitalism, you know, climate change kind of running out of control in the last couple of years. Like it's kind of hard to stick your head in the sand anymore, even if you were a couple of years ago. Well, I think we're at the place where one of the things that we definitely need to turn this around is ceremony. And so I do think it's really important that we humans, you know, humans have been doing ceremonies for the land, for the health of the land for much longer than we have human history, you know, and people are like, oh, well, that sounds really indigenous. I'm like, well, we're all indigenous somewhere, but if you want a white person ceremony that gives an example of this over time, wassail ceremonies are a really good example. Mm -hmm. So like apple wassailing is a great ceremony. It's not like pagany or woo woo in any way. I mean, there's like apple orchards, like commercial apple orchards that do it now. And it's literally an ancient ceremony that bless the apple trees and that there's a lot of elements of magic in that ceremony you can learn a great deal from. And there's no one right way to do it. You can do it with a group of friends, then go have a big feast. But that's a really good example of the kinds of ceremonies that human cultures have done throughout time all over the world that essentially recognize that we are part of helping the land come to an abundant place and a blessed place and a place of fruitfulness. And I think that obviously our culture has forgotten that, right? Maybe we got a couple of vestiges like wassail, right? But I think that that used to be part of the function of humans in the world and we've lost that. And so bringing back ceremonial perspectives, and again, like I'm of the opinion that that can look a lot of different ways. There's no one way, right way to do it. But the idea that I'm raising energy and directing it for a particular purpose for the blessing and health of the land if enough of us start doing that, just like the story you gave where your orchids start showing up, like, I wonder how many orchids we can get to show up if enough right. of us do that. And so right. that's the other piece. Like if you're in the city and you're like, wow, I, I'd love a refugia. You know, maybe I can use my patio. Maybe I don't even have a patio. I still think that you can do a lot of good energetic work on behalf of the land. So I feel like every one of us can pick this up and do this in different ways. And that's part of, you know, we think about, you know, cause I know this podcast is all about cultivating plant relationships. You know, you start doing some of what I'm describing, 
you're going to have the plants coming to you like, Hey, let's <laughs> I mean, because, because as soon as you open yourself up and say, Hey, I'm a person who cares about you. The plant spirits are going to be like, that's awesome. Let's, you know, <laughs> word and, spreads fast. <laughs> right, exactly. And it really does change because, you know, a lot of people walk through the world and I teach a lot of plant walks. That's one of the things I like to do. I'm conflicted about it in some ways, but which I can talk about if you really want to hear it, but but I teach plant walks as part of giving back to my local community and in a way that I can sort of spread my druidry without like looking like a druid or pagan. Because again, I'm in a conservative area and that's just a little difficult, but I can teach a lot of these practices like reciprocation, right. you know, <laughs> harvesting invasive plants, you know, like I can teach a lot of this stuff I'm talking about through, through foraging. And, you know, it blows my mind. Like there are people, a lot of humans cannot even identify like three or four basic plants. Like they know what a dandelion is because they spray it in their yard. Right. Oh, but you know, you can make a wine. Oh, why don't you try some of this dandelion jam? Maybe you wouldn't want to, you know? And so it's like, as soon as we start doing this, whether that's the knowledge piece, whether that's the intuition, the body-based piece we were talking about, whether that's doing something physical on the land, like refugia, whether that's ceremony, all of these different pieces are basically saying to the spirit of the land, Hey, I'm here. I'm not just the person running through the park with my earbuds in I'm actually paying attention and they're going to pay attention back and yeah. suddenly you're going to have allies coming to you and you know your herbal medicines are going to work better and to me people say well you know how do I work with the plants I'm like well start by working with nature and start by showing them that you want to work with them and then you know I'll go in a forest and everyone's like hey what's going on I'm like, hey, you know? here she is yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of people who pick up this work over time they have that experience like suddenly you walk in the forest and you're like, I'm surrounded by a community of friends. And that's a really cool experience. And I do think like the more we do that, the more that we can cultivate that re-enchantment in ourselves and that enchantment, we can see that enchantment in the world. Yeah. And it's so interesting, you know, kind of about the ceremony piece and especially out in public, because I definitely get that question a lot about like, well, I don't want anyone to see me hugging a tree. I don't like, and that fair, you know, right? Like that's not always something that we're not always going to be in an environment where we feel comfortable doing some of these ceremonial things. We kind of have to pick and choose, but I found over the years, you know, I have a little brass singing bowl and Mm, so it's in my backpack, you know, and it's easy to take with me. It's lightweight. And I used to feel really self-conscious, you know, if other people were around, I'd be like, oh, I'll just wait till these people leave. And over time, I have found that, well, first of all, I mean, the trees in particular, it's like they're just stand at attention when yeah. <laughs> the singing bowl comes out, right? Like they love it. And so I do think there is that memory, right? That like oh, absolutely. human memory of like, oh yes, music and, you know, frequencies and whatnot. Like this is something we did together, but I've been surprised if I just have it like sitting next to me or I'm just, you know, it's somewhere people will come over and say, what, are you going to play that? You know, <laughs> you, yeah. uh, you know, they're really curious or I've been on a like a busy summer day before and just kind of, you know, I'll have my blanket out and have some crystals sitting and, you know, not maybe I'm just reading a book, not really doing any ceremony at all. And all of a sudden I'll realize all the people have moved like within kind of right in front of me. And it's like, they can feel the energy that we're creating. And so even when they're not conscious or they're not necessarily participating in what we're doing, I just have this feeling of like, 
it's working, right? Like the energy is working on them, whether they're conscious of it or not. So I always try and think of like these different ways I can just like, you know, tossing the seed bombs, right? <laughs> seed ball, yeah, 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 yeah. Or like, I like to play flute too. So I have a hand yeah. flute that I take out with me. I'll play it around people, you know, a busy place. I do think there's things we can do that we'll draw the right kind. Cause I mean, if there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with drawing attention, you just want to draw the right kind of attention. If you're going to draw okay. attention, <laughs> the right kind of attention, right? right. Like, yeah, like I'm sitting by a waterfall playing a flute. Like nobody's that, at that waterfall is really going to complain about that as long as Never. <laughs> um, and maybe those notes are my prayer to the spirits of the land, to the trees, or they're my gratitude. Right. right. And yeah. So I do feel like there's a lot of stuff we can do. I mean, are you going to be running around in your ritual robes, you know, calling the quarters? Like, no, you're probably not going to be doing Maybe that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but are there still a lot of ceremonial things you can do out in nature where there's a bunch of people around? Yeah, sure. Or when you're traveling and you know, you're know you with people who don't, yeah, that's the other challenge, right? Like, oh, I'm taking a hike in the woods and I'm with right. <laughs> don't understand. And that's when I put my little decorative, you don't even know that there's some little offering blend in there. And I just like kind of take a pinch once in a while and, you know, sort of leave it at a tree and, you know, and I do think like those things, like, again, the more we do this, the more it becomes normalized, you know, mm-hmm. and the more we can sort of find our allies, both in spirit and in the human realms, in the plants and in the trees. So I think there's a lot to that. And I think it can kind of be a game. Like you can sort of play it, like rather than seeing it as an impediment, you know, kind of right. play a game with yourself. Like, hmm, what can I get away with? You know? right. How much can I get? <laughs> yeah. You know, when I was thinking about like, I really wanted to get a lot of these ideas into my community here. And some of my initial attempts that worked really well when I lived in Michigan didn't work at all here. And I started saying, well, what do people want? And I kind of came to the idea of wild food foraging and wild medicine making. People are super interested in that. They really want to know it. And that was a way for me to sort of start bringing some of these concepts in, you know, and I actually like got to the point, like I said, I was a little frustrated for a while because I did feel like people were kind of coming in with a more consumer oriented attitude. So I actually developed Mm -hmm. principles and handouts that I have that I share. And actually I made them creative comments. So anybody who teaches plant walks can share them or just use them or print them out. And, you know, so it's like, how do, I think that's the question is like, part of this magic we're talking about is how do we get these ideas that counter the dominant narrative into circulation because that's a magical act as well. So if somebody stops spraying their dandelions on the lawn and starts making wine, they've just fundamentally radically shifted their relationship with the land. So then what are they going to do next year? What are they going to do next month? And then how can I support that? Right. Continue. Right. Right. And how many people will they share that wine with who say, really? Dandelions? Right. Yeah. <laughs> dandelions totally like one of my gateway plants. That implants. Like, yeah. <laughs> years ago we moved into a rental house and it was like it was a sea of yellow at the front and the backyard and we had a neighborhood kid that would come over and want to mow the lawn and I always say well not until the dandelions are done and it was mystified him you know like you really don't want me to cut the dandelions nope they stay all the way until they're done and you come back after that but it was again there's another conversation you know with somebody about why we're leaving the dandelions and so yeah it's really remarkable kind of the seeds that you can plant in the minds of others in the community as well and not just in your yard so yeah absolutely Yeah, well, thank you so much for being here. I mean, your work is just such an inspiration for all of us who are connecting and working with plants and the spirits of the land and, you know, the forests all around us. And I'm sure that people are going to want to connect with you. So can you share where people can find you and what you have to share with us? 
Sure. So, I mean, you can definitely find me on my blog. It's the Druid's Garden. And I'm sure you can provide the link. I have an Instagram, which is mostly my artwork. It's Druid's Garden Art. I have a book out through Red Feather that came out in May of 2021, which is all about how to integrate sacred actions and sacredness and ceremonies with everyday life towards sustainability. So that's called Sacred Actions of Living the Wheel of the Year through Earth-Centered Spiritual Practice. So it's actually like takes you through the whole wheel of the year and many, many different things that you can do to cultivate a deeper relationship with the earth, give back some of these things we've been talking about. I have two decks, soon to be three. I have the Tarot of Trees, which was my first offering to the world back in 2009. And I have the Plant Spirit Oracle. And then pretty soon, like, I think we're going to be releasing an Indiegogo campaign for it. Uh, the Spring Equinox, I will have the Tree Lore Oracle, which is a North American eco-printed tree deck, which I did with nature as my artistic partner. <laughs> so, I love it. And I got a little sneak peek of the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the proof when we hopped online and it's beautiful. So that's very exciting. Definitely go check that out. Mm-hmm. And um, I was going to say, if you're more interested in Druidry, you know, check out the Ancient Order of Druids in America. A lot of the stuff I've been talking about tonight, I developed through my practices in AODA. And the nice thing about AODA is that we don't have any dogma. So you can literally bring any practice that you have, you know, if you're a Christian Druid or you want to combine Druidry with something else like heathenism or whatever, you can actually bring all of those things into AODA. So we really work on cultivating nature connection and creating a diverse and welcoming environment for everyone. So please check us out. That's amazing. And yeah, I will have all of that in the show notes for you to check out. And Dana, thank you so much for being here. It's been such a pleasure to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earthkeepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earthkeepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.